0: All right. Let's start up right on time. Good. Okay. So, um, we're going to do today is start with King Lear. We'll go over a little bit more on, on Shakespeare. Um, and then from there, we'll go into, uh, the, you know, the first two acts of the play and that'll be that today. Um, seems like I've gotten a few questions over the weekend, Uh, again, about the weekly responses. There is no rubric for the weekly responses. It's just 250 words on something we covered that week in class. Due on Sunday. You need to do 10 of them. That's, that is the, that's it. Um. Now, in terms of the the assignment, the assignment due on Monday, what what is? Um, I, I had some questions on the f- the scanning the text section and the four uh, the four bullet points, the four things to cover in the scanning the text section. Uh, what I'm looking for in writing about those four things are. Just descriptions of four choices you make. Now I listed at the bottom of that worksheet in A through E different examples of places where you would make a choice. Um, for example, where you would change from, you know, maybe an I am to a trochee, enjambment, feminine endings, things like that. So you would want to write when doing the assignment. You would want to to. Um, Acknowledge four places when doing the scansion where you made you know a choice with regards to you know how you chose to scan the text, and those items items A through E are things to consider when making your choice. All right. Is there are there any questions about that? Okay. Very good. Um, Excellent. So. Talking about this week, also we're gonna do Lear. Um, we're gonna look at the the movie a little bit, the uh, and then we're gonna look at Ron on Friday. So Ron, I think if you have Criterion, it's there. Um, you might get it on Amazon. I'm I'm not sure, but take take a look around for that. That is gonna be a more dramatic, um, a more dramatic version of not more dramatic, a, a more different version of King Lear than what we saw in Kenneth Branagh's As You Like It. So the As You Like It, you used this kind of directorial vision of having a, a colonized part of Japan, you know, of 1860s Japan. In Ron, what you're going to see is a completely new vision of the play of King Lear. And we will, we'll talk about that a little bit or try and squeeze that in along with Lear itself. So, any other questions before we jump into into this? All right. So, here we are. Um, so, what's happening in theater at this time, this is the, the second half of the 16th century, the Elizabethan era, is um, th- the plays themselves become more sophisticated. You do see... Under Henry VIII, something developed called the Master of the Revels, which is just a person whose position it was to make sure there was enough theater really to entertain the king. This later, this position later becomes a sort of censorship position, um, which, you know, uh, starts licensing or allowing certain plays on the stage and certain plays off the stage. just becomes, you know, a kind of small deal here. But it becomes like a really big deal um, later on we see in the 18th century. And so we we might run into that again. But anyway, here's how theater is developing in this kind of a little more sophisticated way. You start to see what is known as the university wits. Um, And they're coming out of the two places where universities are Oxford and Cambridge. Um, They are being taught by or being inspired at least by Thomas Saxville, the first earl of Dorset. Those are his years. And he was the person who developed blank verse in his play Gorbodok, which, be thankful, we are not reading for this class. Um, it's a fairly dry play, uh, and it's performed it performed in the 6061 Christmas Festival um, by the Inner Temple, which I believe is a legal place. I'll, I'll look that up. I'm not quite... I, I don't remember what the Inner Temple teaches. I thought it was law. But anyway, um, they... they put that on. Um, and that play and other plays he wrote became a big inspiration for a lot of young, very well-educated people who, um, you know, began to apply a lot more sophistication to the theater. It should be noted that the theater at this time, and even the theater through Shakespeare's time was seen kind of in the way we saw sitcoms um very often the writer of the play was not mentioned shakespeare ben jonson these people were exceptions to the rule typically uh, uh, the writer's name is not mentioned and often plays are written by a number of people you would have uh, and this is true of shakespeare too shakespeare's latter works are actually written with john fletcher so you know um it, it's very common for each play to be collaborative so they're they're not really seen as these kind of individual works of genius the kind of the way we do nowadays. The types of work that were considered um, intellectual and upper crust were sonnet sequences and lyric poetry and epic poetry. Um, and Shakespeare does a little bit of this. He has a sonnet sequence. He has two longer poems, uh, which he writes during the plague years. You know when the theaters are closed. This is how he makes money. He he does it through patronage and sonnet writing, but that was seen as like the, the, the great artistic expression was in poetry, not in theater. Um, however, what we're seeing is people with an education in classical verse coming to the theater. And this is where like this kind of, um, um maybe a more intellectual flourishing begins to happen around this time, um the people who, as I said before, inspired by Saxville and begin to work, they're known as the university wits. Uh, these are, as I said, playwrights attending Oxford and Cambridge. Um, and you could see a few of them here, Thomas Kidd, Robert Greene, John Liley, and the most famous of them is Christopher Marlowe. Um, and they begin to lay the groundwork for Shakespeare. And you could see that. So Thomas Kidd is the person in the Spanish tragedy, writes the first uh, Elizabethan tragedy. The same style that Hamlet's in, the same style that Othello is in, the same style that Lear is in. It really begins with Kidd. Uh, you could see Robert Greene. Um, his prose drama becomes the basis for Shakespeare's The Winter's Tale. Uh, the comedies of Liley are are inspirational to Shakespeare's comedies. So these people and the development of this university with system, though Shakespeare himself did not go to university, is formative for these plays. And, and the most famous of these, as I said before, Marlowe, um, And his works are long, they're grand, they deal with uh, people trying to take over or change the entire world. Um, I, I has anybody read Dr. Faustus? I'm in I'm in presentation mode, so you have to turn your mic on and say so. Okay, so yeah, so okay, so that's what Doctor Faustus is—a guy who makes the deal with the devil for I think twenty-five years. He has unlimited power, and then he his soul goes to hell. Um, Tamburlaine is a two-part play, incredibly long. An interesting play. Um, I I saw it in Brooklyn about five years ago. The entire two part play. Um, They did a nice job with it. But anyway, very long play about um, Tambor the Great who attempts to to take over the known world. So this is this is Marlowe. Marlowe is scope, right? He's bringing that to the theater, and he's also experimenting with blank verse in a way that Shakespeare furthers. So that, you know, we see this, we see this kind of intellectualizing, uh, this, excuse me, this intellectual element coming into the theater. We also, as I said before, have this kind of professionalizing aspect to it. Players can no longer just wander from town to town. They are setting up shop. Um, and, and now you have that kind of energy Um, you have that kind of energy in an urban space where people who go to Cambridge and Oxford kind of end up because you want to make some money and you want to be involved in the court. Well, London's for you. And now the conditions are set for this kind of great flourishing of, of British theater or English theater rather. So let's get to Shakespeare. Here's Shakespeare's birthplace or where we believe his birthplace is. Um, He was born in a town outside of London, Stratford-upon-Avon. We don't know his exact birth date. It was in the last week of April, the uh, last week or second to last week of April. Um, The reason being birth dates are not mentioned in records, but baptismal dates are. So we know when he was baptized, which is like April, I want to say April 26th, though I may have that wrong, Um, but we don't know the day he was born. So, His father, John Shakespeare, was a glove maker and apparently a very successful one. He held other positions in the town as well. He kind of served in a number of municipal roles, including brew taster, which I'm not quite sure what that is, but I imagine you are tasting the beer that's brewed. Um, He had, William Shakespeare had four younger siblings, including the actor Edmund Shakespeare, who also went to London and, and performed in plays with his brother Shakespeare attended grammar school until scholars debate somewhere between ages 13 or 15, he left school. So congratulations, you have more education than Shakespeare. Um, during that time, the two playwrights he read who were very formative were Seneca and Plautus. Um, and a lot of the, the type of Plautus characters, um, he develops and makes more complex. One example would be Malvolio. Malvolio, who is taken from the braggart soldier mold. Uh, it, does anybody know Malvolio or the play Twelfth Night? Okay, okay, yeah. So Mal- Malvolio is kind of, is the the steward for this, um, you know, for for this royal figure, which is a steward takes care of the the estate basically, and it's it's a prank that's pulled on him in which. He falsely believes she is interested in him. And so he acts like a fool um, in in order to woo her, even though in reality she's she's not gonna go for it. Uh, he has no chance. And that's taken from the braggart soldier. That, that type of thing is taken from the braggart soldier, that type of character, right And so Shakespeare's developing it um, and he's deepening it too. We have actually feel quite sad for Malvolio when in the end it turns out he's been, made a complete ass of. Well, in the braggart soldier, that's that's hard to say, mostly because the braggart soldier at the end says, yeah, that's all right, whatever, I deserved it, applause, you know. Um, but these are the influences on Shakespeare. So you have the university wit thing going on in London, but at the same time, you know, um, even people of modest means are reading these classical texts. All right. So, 1582, he marries Anne Hathaway. Um, she is somewhat older than him, so significantly older than him, and she's also eight months pregnant at the time of the wedding, which means that scholars basically believe Shakespeare was involved in a a shotgun wedding. Um, he had three children. He had his twins Hamnet and Judith, and then Susanna. Susanna was his eldest daughter. She was the Um, the inspiration for the shotgun wedding. And then after that, he had Hamnet and Judith. Hamnet died very young. I think he was nine when he died. And uh, Judith and Susan married. um, And they, I think one of them had a granddaughter, but the line dies out after that. So there are no descendants, direct descendants to William Shakespeare. By 1592, he we know he's established in in London. Um, so this is a period of time between 1585 and 1592. Where we're not quite sure what he's doing. Okay. Um. Yeah. So, but we know by 1592 he is in London. He's a successful actor and he's writing. Uh, he becomes over time a shareholder in the Lord Chamberlain's, Chamberlain's men which when James takes the throne in the early 17th century becomes known as the king's men. And what a shareholder was is a shareholder like in a company. It's somebody who owns stock in the theater itself. Um, playwrights typically were not people who made a lot of money. Um, you know, that, that was not the the appeal was the playwrights. So how some writers made money was either as actors also, or in Shakespeare's cases, people who bought into a company. Now, there isn't that many companies around. So, you know, we know with Elizabeth, the initial license was for four companies. I think there is more by then. Um, But, you know, generally, that's... uh, that's not the case. Um, That's not the case that there's a lot of companies. So typically playwrights were not shareholders. They were simply not well-paid people. Um, And their names, as I said before, didn't resonate very much. Often when plays were published, which was not frequently, the, the names of the playwrights didn't appear on the play even. So Shakespeare's a rarity, both in his talent, but also in his business acumen by becoming a shareholder and actually becoming quite, uh, quite well to do from his stock in the King's men. Um, so sometimes sometime between 1611 and 1613, he retires back to Stratford on Avon. He buys the second largest property in that town. I I don't know what the largest one is. And, uh, he retires there dying in 1616 at the age of 51. Um, most, play, most uh, um, shareholder theaters didn't have a playwright for the theater. The playwrights tended to write for one group or another. Again, the the king, uh, what it was called, the King's Men at this time, was an exception. And so Shakespeare handed over the duties to John Fletcher, a writer he had been working with in his later plays such as Henry the Eighth and Two Noble Kinsmen. And so that's kind of his story. Um. What's interesting about Shakespeare, if you ever, you know, kind of dive into his biography more, is that we have more kind of physical material documents from Shakespeare's day than we do with most other playwrights. The problem is that a lot of these documents don't particularly reveal uh, Shakespeare's opinions on things we might be interested in. We know he was pretty litigious. He, he sued people frequently, uh, usually for land problems. Um, he also uh, purchased a coat of arms for his father, which was this kind of um, this, this official seal, something like that. And if you paid uh, enough money, you could get, your, your family could get a coat of arms, which documented them as, as being well-to-do. Um, and he was able to do that for his father. And we have the application made for that. Um, but unlike people like Ben Jonson, for example, we don't really know Shakespeare's opinion, even on his own plays. Ben Jonson, who's a little younger than Shakespeare, and his work is very different. We're not going to do Ben Jonson, um, But he, his work tends to be about London, and about the the goings on of the city. It, it's much more local. And the the tone is utterly different than Shakespeare. Um, But Ben Johnson wrote about writing. He wrote about doing his own work. Ben Johnson also made an effort to preserve all his plays. There seems to be no effort on Shakespeare's part to preserve his plays, right? Shakespeare seemed to write them. He didn't seem to make an effort to publish them. We know of at least one play that was lost. We probably know of two plays that were lost. Um, And so he... Despite there being a lot of biographical evidence of him, especially compared to other people in this time, there's still a lot of mystery about him. You know, we're not quite sure where this great, (laughs) who, how this great work came out of him. Um, But here's some what I call fun pictures, as you can see. Uh, So this is the coat of arms that here's the application for the coat of arms. You can see that there, and there's a little pun in it. You can see the spear coming out of the shield. That's that's Shakespeare's joke, um, the the spear on the shield rather. That's that's the little pun for the coat of arms. Um, this is Shakespeare's home. Uh, it doesn't exist anymore. It's been it's a garden now or something. It was it was paved over. Um, but here's a drawing we have of it from 1737. So a little more than hundred years after he died, and it was apparently still standing in 1737. And this is the oldest picture we have of New Place is the name of the, the residence. Um, yeah, very large. Not all that interesting looking, honestly. Here are fun pictures uh, of Shakespeare. The The most famous portrait of him, which is, you know, it's not, we don't have a guarantee that's of him, but scholars believe it is. Um, the Chandos portrait from around 1600. This is for the longest time believed to be the only portrait of Shakespeare made during his lifetime, which means it was probably taken from him sitting, right? Him sitting for the portrait, which I mean that's kind of this is what he looked like. Um, however, there's been recent debate uh, discovered in 2006. The Cobb portrait suggests that this might be Shakespeare. However, there's debate about this. There's um, a lot of arguments that this is actually a portrait of someone else we're not entirely sure. A few years ago, about 10 years ago, this portrait made the rounds in a lot of museums. So if you were in in New York in like 2000, uh, 2014, 2015, you, you could have seen it. It was at the Morgan. Um, but this is a big deal a few years ago when this portrait was discovered. Okay. Now we get into publishing during the early modern period. So You have the quarto and the folio. These are the two main types of books that are coming out. The quarto was on a single sheet, you have you have a single sheet divided into four. Um, Each side of that sheet are printed. So on each side you'd get four pages, hence quarto. And altogether with one page you'd get eight of them. Eight pages. You'd print on those and then from there um, you would fold and bind the quarto together. So you take these different pages, you'd fold them together. The page markings were in the corner and also the, the final word of each page was printed on the page following. So you knew how to connect the pages together and they would be folded together and sewn together. This was very cheap. Um, and eighteen of the first thirty-six folio plays were printed in Cordo. Um, Two Noble Kinsmen and I think the Winter's Tale were not printed in the folio. And so we only have them from the Cordo. Um, the Cordos, rather. But I'm I'm not entirely sure about that. I'm I'm positive Two Noble Kinsmen was not printed in the folio. But we'll look at look for the, the other one anyway. Um, the often you'd see one or two cordos for plays. However, there is a ton of plays that, that weren't, um, you know, 18 plays in the folio were never printed in quarto. They would have been lost without it. Um, however, so the, these cordos, where they come from and whatnot, these, the cordos are sometimes apparently taken from what are called the foul pages. These are Shakespeare's own words. A lot of times they were actors who memorized the play, wrote it down, and took it to a printer because they knew they could make money off of it. There was no um, there was no kind of trademark. there was no patent law. there was uh, no copyright law at this time. There wouldn't be until the first decade of the eighteenth century um, when when Queen Anne begins to put, stationer rights into into effect and even then that's kind of a law about who could print what um so Shakespeare had no chance of of making um making money off of these things and so play uh players who memorized these texts were perfectly happy to make money off them um doing what they did. It seems like Shakespeare was not particularly interested in that. Uh, And so the phenomena that comes out of this is sometimes you'll get bad quartos. Hamlet has a very famous bad quarto, and sometimes even different schools or or different theaters will put it on, right? They'll put on bad quarto Hamlet. Um, Yeah. And sometimes though, the quarto will provide lines that are not in the folio. Lear is an example of this. There's about 300 lines between the first and second quartos of Lear that don't actually appear in the folio. And so when you see a quote unquote complete production of Lear, which just means as many lines as possible, um, those involve synthesizing the folio and the quarto. Uh, And so that's interesting. This here is the first. This is a picture that is of the first quarto of Lear. Uh, Nathaniel Butter was the publisher, um, and you could see in the the bottom of the page they are printed by Nathaniel Butter and to be sold in his shop at Paul's Churchyard, at the sign of the Pied Bull near Saint Askin's Gate, sixteen o eight. Um, so St. Paul's was the big church there. And apparently there was a, a, uh, a shop underneath the, the sign of a bull. And that's where you could, you know, find, um, Mr. Butter's plays. People believe that, um, that this was, uh, uh copied from an actor, like a, this, an actor memorized the first quarto and kind of gave it to Butter to, to publish, um, people think it was probably the actor who played Edgar, because if you see the title, um, the word Edgar is, seems to be larger than the word Lear. So that's, that's why people believe that. Uh, and however, the, the second quarto printed in, in 1619 after Shakespeare was dead, but that's how a lot of these texts circulated and survived because, um, because of what today would be illegal printing, but back then was kind of legal printing. Now, here's the real important one. This is the folio. This is printed 1623, contains 36 of Shakespeare's plays. Initially, there was 750 copies printed, which was a large printing. Only about just over 200 of those survive. Um, and I think recently, maybe as recent as 2012 or something, two, two more were discovered. So people are still finding folios. Um, 18 plays printed in the folio appear in no other place. And the cost per folio was 15 shillings. Um, to bind it together, there was a leather binding that held it together, unlike the quarto, which is just sort of roped together. Um, that's about $200 in, in modern money. So, you know, expensive, extremely expensive for people back then, since $200 might be like a year's income for a a lower income person. Um, I did want to play this link here, just because it's cool to see how it's printed. Let's see, let me go through this entire uh, outline here and then we'll, uh, this this entire slideshow and then we'll see. Okay, so performance. So uh, King Lear was first played, the the character himself was first played by Richard Burbage, pictured here, here's a, a picture of Burbage who was a, the, the son of James Burbage. We mentioned him the other day. He built the, the theater, the second theater in England, the second stationary theater in England. He also built the Rose. He also built the Globe. Um, and Burbage was his son and like the, the great actor of his day. He was the first Othello. He was the first Lear. He was the first Hamlet. Um, so very important actor. Uh, the Fool was written for another extremely famous actor, Robert Armin. Um, clowns in this time w- garnered a lot of attention. William Kemp was Shakespeare's clown before Armin, and Kemp left uh, the Chamberlain's Men in order to kind of pursue his own his other works. Um, one thing he did was he did a dance across England he he had like a little dance he did he was famous for this dance and he did it from one side of England to the other, which was a big made him a lot of money. So you know that's really cool I guess. Um, but anyway, he was replaced by Robert Robert Armin and Armin, unlike Kemp, was much more um, much more of a wit rather than a physical fool. <coughs> Excuse me, and so Shakespeare had to change the the type of fool character in order to to accommodate the talent that he had. Um, Armit is a very talented guy, apparently by by all accounts. Um, but he did things differently than Kemp, and so you know when you read later Shakespeare compared to earlier Shakespeare. The changes, in part, aren't just you know out of the head of the genius. They're based upon the material conditions that he was working with um, when the play was first re- performed. So the play had to be registered. The stationers' register was the place he did that. It uh, in in publishing one of the public uh, there was a publisher of this play who mentioned that it was performed on December twenty sixth. It could have also been performed as early as sixteen o five. There's a poem we found that was published in 1604 that seems to be lifting lines from King Lear. This poem is our best evidence that this play was performed as early as 1604, but honestly, we're not entirely sure. It seems like it was at least performed, it couldn't, its first performance couldn't be later than 1606. We know that much. Um, there was another play called King Lear From 1594. This is played by another company, the Queensmen, uh, and it it seems like that was very popular. Shakespeare, as he did with a lot of things, drew from Hollinshed's 1987 book, The Chronicles of England, Scotland, and Ireland. Um, I'm not misspelling there, that's how they spelled Scotland and Ireland back then. Um, Hollinshed is very, very famous. His chronicle was very, very famous, and Shakespeare used it. As one of his primary sources, not only for Lear, but really for the history plays. And so the, the stereotypical and probably not wholly inaccurate depiction of Richard III, for example, that's like a Hollandshed thing. Um, king Lear was a, w- was considered a king from an ancient period in England's history a period so ancient that it's probably fictitious. Uh, you know, it seems like there was no real King Lear. However, it's uncertain to me as to if the, the English people of 1600 knew that it it might be the case. They thought he was a real King of England. Um, you know, based upon the fact that Hollinshed is chronicling him as such. Okay. So here's some more fun pictures. Here's, uh, Robert you could see he how popular he was uh, he he starts writing and here's a, actually a picture of him so in a Cordo he is so popular he, he gets a, a picture made of him um, here's William Sly another very popular member of the company I'm not entirely sure who we played I think Kent probably in in the, uh, the, the in King Lear um, but we don't really know. All right. here's some more Oh, here's like a fun little bit. This is this document on the left is a I think a, a land survey for a property that's being sold. And it's the first mention we have of the globe. Um, and we know the globe was there in 1599 at least because of this paper, which mentions that the, the property that's being surveyed, being sold is across the, sh- the street from a place where William Shakespeare works. Uh, which would be the globe at this point. Um, so we know that the globe was, we know the globe's earlier date um, being 1599 because of that document right there, which is interesting. Just I thought it was interesting how history is constructed, right? It's from these kind of, in these indirect ways that we are able to stitch together what happened, right? It's not somebody, you know, doing a property sale for the Globe itself. It's somebody writing about a property that was across the street and just trying to let people know where it was and in so doing informs us hundreds of years later when the Globe started or roughly when the Globe started. Um, on your right, here is a original product, no, original original, um, original tech, I guess you would call it, or, or original style production of Richard III. Um, starring now Oscar winner Mark Rylance as Richard III, who was the the managing director uh, and art—excuse me, the artistic director of the Globe for a number of years. And this is the most accurate uh, creation of um, the costuming at that period. And you could see that, um, you know, obviously the there's a man playing. Um, I think that's that's Anne, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and so they tried to make the, the globe at that time was trying to make productions as close to Shakespeare's day as possible. Um, the costumes were extraordinarily expensive. That gown in Shakespeare's day would probably be around 300 pounds, which was about hmm, like 35, 40,000 pounds in today's money. So, you know, probably more than your education. Um, so the costumes were the most expensive. Thing. They were more expensive than the building. Um, you know, they were the most expensive thing there. They were the most expensive capital. They were locked up secure uh, at the end of the day. People didn't leave with costumes. Um, you know, so yeah, that, that was, that was the most important actual physical item in the theater. I think that's it. Um, Let me see. Okay. You know what? Let's not do this. It, it shows how things were printed back then. Um, it's a video of it. I think it's fairly long. Uh, oh, not fairly long. Excuse me. It's only like three or five minutes, but um, I'm going to post this obviously as, as I do with all the, the slideshow presentations in the in the content folder. So if you want to see that video, uh, just, just click on it. It's part of the Folger Shakespeare thing. Um, the Folger Shakespeare library has a pretty good and informative website. So if you're interested in more of this history stuff, that would be great. But okay, let's get into the play itself. But before then, any questions about any of that? Okay, good. So let's start then with um, opening comments about the play. Any any opening comments? Had, has anyone not read this before? Okay. Has anyone read this before? How about that? That seems to be the better question. Okay, so Juliana has. So Juliana, where did you read this before? In class or just for your own edification? Oh, okay, In high school class, good. All right, so I think we have one person who, who's read this before. Great, so this is, um, I picked this because, I well, Hamlet's my favorite tragedy. Um, I think that, this is probably like the saddest tragedy. This is the, you know, the most upsetting. Um, and I think probably everyone here has either read Hamlet or has, you know, stumbled upon it at some point. Um, so I picked as you like it and Lear because I think they're, they're two very different plays, but plays you guys probably haven't read. So you at least get to do something, something new, unlike Oedipus, which, you know, it seems like everybody in here has read. Um, so let's start with what is actually happening in the first act. Okay. And we'll start even with the first scene. What is Lear doing in this first scene? Dowry. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. Yeah, so there's Lear is old. He's king. He's dividing up his kingdom. And he wants to have a testament from each daughter about how great he is. And so the first daughter to go is um, Goneril. Right, and Goneril says... Sir, I love you more than words can wield the matter, dearer than eyesight, space and liberty beyond what can be valued, rich or rare, no less than life with grace, health, beauty, honor, as much a child, ere loved or father found a love that may, you know, blah, blah, blah. She goes on and on and on. And then um, Regan comes up and Regan is, uh, I am made of that self metal as my sister and prize me at her worth. In my true heart, I find she names my very deed of love, only she comes too short, that I profess myself an enemy to all other joys which the most precious square of sense possesses, and find I alone felicitate in your dear highness's love. So she comes up and says, I, I feel the same way that my sister, um, only she comes too short. She, you know, it's, uh, I, I feel even more love. And then Cordelia. Uh, what is Cordelia's hang-up, right? Because Cordelia is not going to do this, this charade. Well, what what is her hang-up? Why isn't she going to participate in this? No, she respects him. Yeah. She's not going to do something she finds fake or false, right? In order to, um, you know, in in order to make sure she can guarantee some land. She kind of finds it bizarre that her sisters are um, kissing ass in order to get property, right? And she says, this is 1195, um, ninety-five Good, my lord, you have begot me, bred me, loved me. I return those duties back as are right fit. Obey you, love you, and most honour you. Why have my sisters husbands, if they say they love you all? Happily, when I shall wed, that lord whose hand must take my plight shall carry half my love with him, half my care and duty. Sure, I shall never marry like my sisters. Um... And so she, you know, um, exactly. So she's saying that her, her husband's going to carry half of my love with him, half my care and duty, um, which is going to be kind of a problem if you keep saying, I, I love my father with all my heart and everything I do is devoted to him. She's being honest here. She's saying, I have duty also to... Whichever future husband I, I take up with, um, and, you know, whatever land he has. And so she refuses to, like you guys said, uh, kiss layers, but, um, and she gives reasons for it. There's actually, you know, my sisters must not be honest because if they're saying they love you above all things and holy, they are not, you know, taking into the fact that they have a, a, a husband. They both have husbands to consider. Okay. So there's that. And what is the consequence of that? Mm Hmm. Mm Hmm. Yeah. You're not going to get any land. You know, she says, nothing, my lord. Nothing, nothing. Nothing will come of nothing. Speak again. I cannot heave my heart into my mouth. Yeah. And so. Um, He takes her third and hands it off to Goneril and Regan. Okay, good. Um, Now, this creates another problem for her wedding, right? She is right now between two possible suitors. Who are those suitors? Burgundy in France, exactly. So now that she doesn't have a dowry, as you mentioned before, Jude, who is going to back out of that? Who's going to marry her then? Yep, exactly. Yeah, Burgundy backs out, and France marries her. This is line 211, 213, 214, sorry, 213, tis most strange that she, whom even but now was your best object. The argument of your praise, balm of your age, the best, the dearest, should in this trice of time commit a thing so monstrous. To dismantle so many folds of favor. Sure her offense must be of such unnatural degree that monsters it, or your fore vouched affection fall into a taint, which to believe of her must be a faith that reasons without miracle, should never plant in me. Um yeah, and so uh then Burgundy later says, royal king, give but thy portion, which yourself proposed. And here I take Cordelia by the hand, Duchess of Burgundy. Um, Burgundy says, I'm sorry that you have lost a father, that you may lose a husband. And so that leaves, that leaves France. Okay, good. So that happens, right? Um, France is marrying here. Burgundy's gone. What else does this disagreement with Cordelia cause? What other character becomes highlighted as a consequence of it? Okay. Okay, so let's look at, look at Kent and his role here. Um, so Kent comes in line 120. Good, my liege. And Lear says, peace, Kent. Come not between the dragon and his wrath. I loved her most and thought to set my rest on her kind nursery to Cordelia. Hence, and avoid my sight. So be my grave, my peace, as I call, as here I give her father's heart from her, call France, who stirs, call Burgundy, dot, dot, dot. Um, and Kent's response is, um, let it fall rather through the fork, invade the region of thy heart. Be Kent unmannerly when Lear is mad. What wouldst thou do, old man? Thinkest thou that duty shall have dread to speak? Where power of flattery bows, to plainness is honor bound, when majesty falls to folly, reserve thy state, and in thy best consideration check this hideous rashness. Answer my life, my judgment. Thy youngest daughter does not love thee least, nor are those empty hearted whose low sounds reverb no hollowness. And so what is he what he's saying there is You are acting mad you're acting like an old man. Um, your Majesty falls to folly. Yeah, it re- falls to hideous rashness. Um, and your youngest daughter loves you best. And those people who are kind of chirping compliments at you—it um, reverb no hollowness, right? It's a low sound. Um, it's it's empty, right? It doesn't it doesn't reverberate. It doesn't sound out. It's empty compliments. And so Kent is trying to correct Lear and what is, what ends up happening to Kent? (coughs) Yeah, he banishes him. And Kent does come back in disguise. So Kent comes back under the service of Lear, but Lear doesn't recognize him as Kent. Right. Yeah, so so Lear um, Lear says, Five days we do allot thee for provision to shield thee from disasters of the world, and on the sixth to turn thy hated back upon our kingdom. If on the tenth day following thy banished trunk be found in our dominions, the moment is thy death. Um, and so Kent will, will later come back. Uh, to serve Lear and help him in disguise. Okay. So that ends up being what happens in the this first scene here. Um, and then it ends with a little conversation between Regan and Goneril. Um, which they think on how to manage their father and manage France. And then we jump into scene two. And so what's the main conflict going on in scene two? What is the, the conditions that are being introduced? Oh, we're over time. <laughs> oh, we don't get very far, do we? Um, okay, great. So we're over time. It's 11.01 or 11.02 by now. Um, so next time we'll, we'll start on scene one, uh, scene two. Sound good? Okay. Thank you. I'll see you then. I'll see you Wednesday.